When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, I want to speak to Colin Breen. We featured Colin a few times on this uh, program and have uh, another chance to talk to him today. A force like no other. Colin, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Colin, you wrote the book. Uh, you're, in many ways, tribute to the RUC. You're an RUC member yourself. You're now a, a writer. Um, you brought us a force like the weather. This is a second book that you've brought out. Uh, tell me about it. Um, it's actually called uh, A Force Like No Other, The, the Next Shift. And it was re- it's really a continuation, although it differs um, and I don't just mean in terms of the actual stories, but even in the nature, because I was conscious of not trying to write the same book twice. Um, but really, it's a re- recollection of anecdotal stories from uh, colleagues and obviously some of my own stories, um, which I was asked to do following um, the first book being well-received. And so it was done and just came out last month. Do you set out to pay tribute? Do you set out to remind us of the dilemmas the police face? Do you set out to uh, conjure up debate or discussion? What's your motivation in writing, Colin? My motivation, first of all, was um, I thought I was going to write uh, a funny book of all the sort of crazy, stupid, bizarre things that happen across the world uh, to police officers when they're out on duty. Um, and the old black humour that allows them to survive um, the, the world over. They can find things funny that you know normal people, as we call them, uh, would probably be horrified at. But it was their defence mechanism to cope um, with what they were being faced with. So I thought I was going to write a funny book, but as time went on and I spoke to colleagues... Uh, and they started to tell me stories that they'd never told their families. And I realized then that they wanted to get their story out as to what actually happened and the reality of what policing in Northern Ireland during those dark years was actually like. And it's done without comment, uh, without anything. It's quite literally trying to put the reader in the front seat of a police car. And when that radio crackled into life, you didn't know... Um, whether in a few minutes you'd be dead, you'd be injured, you'd be helping someone, or you'd be laughing. Uh, it really was as, as um, bizarre and as extreme as that. And I was really just trying to let the reader see the reality of policing and the consequences of uh, you know, human beings' actions against other human beings. You talk about maybe getting a laugh at the end of the day or also your own life being at risk. 
arriving at a scene where there's been carnage and one of the examples you use in the book was the investigation into the Shankill butchers. That's in this particular book. Those who were, investi- those who were involved in that investigation must have been dealing with one of the horrors, the greatest horrors of the Troubles. Absolutely, and um, some of the uh, officers, particularly in the murder squad, as well as uniformed officers who were the first on the scene when everybody's would be discovered, um, are still uh, dealing with it and, and suffering from what they saw and the accumulation of the number of murders. I mean, the murder squad in, in Tennant Street at that time consisted of 10 people uh, without a computer between them. And, um, I mean, apart from the butchers' uh, atrocities that were carried out, they also dealt with, over that same period, 155 other murders, uh, those 10 men. So, I mean, they, sometimes they were just going from murder to murder to murder, Um and, and obviously that pressure builds up uh, on anyone and, and even uniformed people attending you know, bodies being found at such and such. And people, as in the public, obviously, who are protected from it don't perhaps realise just what exactly that means. But, um, I mean, I worked in Tennant Street myself and when I first went up there, part of your detail if you were on night duty was to do a body patrol to go around the area to look at entries and skips or up and there was a rural road where quite a few people were dumped and um, it was to find the bodies before the public did. Shocking. It is absolutely shocking. But the, the reality well, is that that's the way that's the way it was. We we only have to look at a program like Frontline on UTV or indeed this recent Spotlight series on the BBC to know that it was carnage. And I saw a pop program, Pop Goes Northern Ireland, the other the other night where they put music to the troubles, and it just was death after death after death. Now I I know there will be people listening to this program. Understandably, people listening to this program. Saying, oh, what are you talking to a cop about the cops for? I'm talking to a writer about the cops who used to be a cop. So this this interview is not about analysing who was on for the RUC or who was against the RUC or who blighted the 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 copybook of the RUC, blotted the copybook of the RUC, or who was in, in, included whenever the the great gloom of collusion uh, fell on police officers. We're talking about ordinary cops doing ordinary work every single day during the Troubles. That, that's, that's what your book's about, isn't it? That, that is what the book is. It's, as I've described it sometimes, I was trying to humanise the uniform because people see a uniform, but again, they don't look at the, you know, the mother, the father behind that uniform, the brother, the sister, um, the, the, the person out there is. I mean, they're just a member of the public uh, when they're not at work the same as uh, you or anyone else. And when they went... Uh, ordinary people just put into extraordinary circumstances and that's why it's done without comment there's no um, people shouldn't do this, there's no side chosen Uh, it's quite literally you know if if terrorists from whatever quarter uh, did whatever it was they did and the police were responding to it, it just tells the story of what they did uh, to deal with it, to investigate it, whatever it might have been. But no, no side is chosen or mentioned um, or singled out because that's not what it's about. This is, this is the human story of having to tidy up after what other people did. And as well as some of the lighter moments and you know in ordinary placing, of course. And I, I want to get to those lighter moments in, in, in a second. But in, in this book, you, you also take us to Anna Skellen in 1987. 
Yes, obviously, um, that's um, a story that has, I suppose, followed Northern Ireland around the, uh, the world, uh, with it being Remembrance Day and um, well, what happened and the number of people killed uh, and injured. And, uh, you know, well, a lot of these um, officers wanted their story uh, to be told, but had great difficulty in doing it, and they suffer from what they witnessed, but felt it was important uh, to get the story out on record. And, um, I mean, that one particularly, the one uh, gentleman who was telling me, I mean, he wanted to tell me, and he just wanted to get it out almost in one breath, but couldn't do it, because he still suffers from it to this day. Um, and, and uh, you know, broke down numerous times while telling the story. And, you know, my heart would like to him while he was doing it. And uh, you have to give him every credit for wanting to get uh, what it was actually like on record. Do you, do you feel that uh, as time goes on, the post-traumatic stress element of, of this is shrouding poli- police officers? Do, do they need significant help and, and, and guidance from psychiatrists? Uh, unquestionably, they do, and uh, you know there are organisations which do help them. The, the police have one um, near Hollywood. There's a Fermanagh, there's F Group, do fantastic work uh, with people who are suffering because very often they were left to suffer in silence, and it wasn't really the image, you know, that if you thought you needed help. And back in the day, even in mine, there was no help. I mean, if you were shot at, if you were out on patrol or whatever it may have been, or been out somewhere in this incident, um, as I always remark, it was, you know, a, a, a bottle of whiskey with uh, the, the inspector or something, and, um, you know, then you were left to make your own devices and come in the next day. But there was no counselling per se, um, and obviously a lot of things. I mean, if you take Tennis Street that we spoke of there, and there was body patrols, well, the worst month that Tennis Street had was 29 murders in 31 days. And, you know, for any murder squad or any police officers or any any human being, having to deal with that and go and attend uh, the incident horrors of what that brings, and then just go home to your tea with your wife and children, um, or our husband and children, I mean, it, it, it's... Uh, it's quite an ask, uh, but they did it, and uh, some of them it caught up with. It, it does. It just sounds, when you put it, like you're delivering it to us, Colin, as just merciless, absolutely merciless. When you watch the documentaries at the moment, and we, we see the police in action, for better or for, for worse, and we, we see the, quite a bit of footage on television now of the police beating into protesters with batons, firing rubber bullets, and actually um, beating into protesters on, on the documentary with Spotlight on both sides of the community. They beat the living daylights out of civil rights campaigners, and then in the mid-80s, they beat the living daylights out of protesters who were protesting against the um, Anglo-Irish, uh, Anglo-Irish agreement. How do you feel when you see that, the, the, the police on the screen all these years later doing that? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm probably different with your description of Beat the Living Daylight, right? but I understand what you mean, that uh, force was used uh, to sometimes clear the street and try and uh, maintain public order. But you've also got to bear in mind, and when you go back to the, the civil rights, and I don't like singling out particular sides of the, the difficulty, but the police in that time, 
I mean, they didn't really know what they were doing either. I mean, I remember one policeman telling me when we were talking about that, he got sent up uh, to a day in, the, in a, an old um, Cumber van, and he went up, and he came back 10 days later in the shirt he went up in, and they uh, slept on the streets. They, if, he said if it hadn't been for the Salvation Army, we wouldn't even have had food. So it, it was a, a learning uh, curve for everyone, and there was no sophistication the way there may be now. Uh, as to how to control uh, public order. And uh, everything sort of evolved from the start of it. The, you know, the, the people, even when the, the um, uh, movement started, the civil rights movement started, and then when it got hijacked uh, by a more violent uh, crowd, uh, I mean, all of that was sort of an embryonic police force trying to keep pace with fast-moving circumstances. And in the circumstances, they were doing the best they could and the people who were I suppose in charge to be fair didn't really know what they were doing either and that officer told me, he said I went up there thinking somebody knows why I'm here and what I'm supposed to be doing but when I got there I realised they didn't didn't know any more than I did Mm. Because it it comes across it comes across on the screen, I'm listening to your description of it but it does come across on the screen to anyone watching it today and for people who would have been there uh, at the time that the the police landed in en masse and just beat the crap out of any Catholic they could see Well I certainly wouldn't say that it was done uh, certainly never in my time, I mean I can't speak for that era but it certainly wouldn't have been done uh, the protesters from whatever side they were uh, may have run into force um, from the police trying to keep uh, the peace but I mean they, I don't think that it was a bit too straightforward to single them out religiously similarly with the riots in the bit 60s that were going on in Paris and going on in America and in Vietnam demonstrations when you look back at those I mean it looks very mob and very heavy handed but again it's back to Grosvenor um, Square in London it, it all comes down to how policing has evolved and what it is now is obviously a very different kettle of fish for both protester um, and the, the forces of law and order. And the immediate one that, that across the world that will get the uh, the bad name will always be the police because they're coming to try and um, sustain order or perhaps stop, stop someone doing from what they want to do should it be a march. And the police were acting under orders, don't forget as well, from the old Stormont regime. Um, you know, and told what they had to do. So it wasn't like some police officers sitting somewhere and saying, let's go down and do X, Y, and Z, you know, for a bit of crack. It was just the way that they were put in those circumstances. And as I said, that guy up there for 10 days, he said nobody knew what they were doing, including us. And that, that's just the way it was. And we forget how long ago it was. Um, I mean, the people investigating murders have told me that when they went to a, a murder in, in North Belfast particularly it's always been a, a high rate um, they had barely time to get the name and address of, of the deceased before they were away to the next one and then 40 years later someone's going to ask you well why didn't you do X, Y, or Z and it was really just I mean if you're talking about cuts and, and the lack of manpower now, I mean it's then night from what it was like back then to be fair to them There's some interesting points that you make. It is always going to be a book for the police, by the police, about the police. I I, I accept that from from your perspective, uh, uh, Colin. Many people will read it and detest it because they still detest the the police or they've detested the police for the the greater part of of their, their lives. Others will read it and get a sense of just how difficult and how... 
heartbreaking it was to be a police officer forever looking but over I, your I, shoulder. I would disagree, Frank, insofar as it's a place for the police, by the police. It's really um, showing what the police were doing, and they've never spoken before, and were never ever really given a voice um, in, in what has been going on. Plenty has been written about them and for them, but this was actually giving them a voice, and as I say, it's done with, without opinion. But members of the public, uh, I, in other words, no place, are people who I find are coming to me or feedback I'm getting on social media, media um, or, or even reviews on, on Amazon and things. Um, and they're saying to me, you know, I grew up in Northern Ireland and didn't know this was going on because there's no comment in it. So it's not for the police. I think there's a lot of people. I mean, the, the troubles and inverted commas are supposed to be over now for some 20 years. So there's a whole generation who are feeding back to me, telling me that um, they're amazed what it was like because nobody ever knew what it was like to actually be on the street uh, trying to prevent what was going on. Everybody can point out uh, where they may have uh, stumbled or, or, or gone wrong. But nobody ever tells them how they could have necessarily uh, done it better because that's just not the, the nature of things. But I can assure you it, it, it's a book that anyone with an interest in Northern Ireland will enjoy. And indeed, one reviewer who was from uh, West Belfast actually wrote that he wouldn't have been the greatest fan of the place. And when he got the book, he thought it was going to be a work the place great, which is not that sort of book. It, I mean, it's works at all. And he said, changed his opinion. He said, whenever I got to the end of it, I just realised that uh, these were people that are living just like the rest of us. Well, Henry MacDonald from The Observer and The Guardian, uh, he's the Ireland correspondent. He says Colin Breen has provided a most powerful and unique insight into the world's most dangerous job in policing in the 70s and 80s. And Henry MacDonald, of course, wouldn't be uh, behind the wall when it would come to saying what he thinks. So at the end of the day, he is a respected uh, voice on it. Uh, Colin, um, we didn't get a chance to talk about a, a, a happy moment in it, a jolly moment, a, a, a laugh. Do you have one briefly? Um, well, one very brief one that uh, comes to mind was uh, a lady phoned um, my partner police station to complain about a, uh, an army helicopter uh, hovering over her head. And uh, the policeman said, well, I'll go try and find out what's going on for you. And she was complaining about the noise. And uh, but there was obviously very little he could do. You know, who, who do you phone him? And this has gone on. So she phoned um, a few times, very pressed, and I'm not doing the story justice, but she phoned a few times, and every time it was worse. This is terrible. I can't get to sleep. The kids are awake now, and the noise is just getting terrible. And what are we going to do? And eventually he told her that um, he was very sorry, but he was just off the phone with them. And it turned out the helicopter had broken down, and they were waiting on another one coming from the airport to tow it in. And she said, all right, oh, that's great. Well, thanks very much for finding that out for me. And the way she went quite happy. (laughs) If I see a helicopter being towed, I'll know what's wrong with it. <laughs> you'll, know, you'll know what's happening. There's trouble somewhere. <laughs> Colin, thanks very much for coming on. A Colin Breen's book, A Force Like No Other, The Next Shift. It's the follow-up to A Force Like No Other. It's available now if you want to read it, uh, read it and make up your own mind. Uh, this is the U105 phone-in. Good morning. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 